So um, I listened to sermon, uh, Liz's sermon on the, on the net last Sunday night when I got home and thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought she preached r- really well last week. Thank you, Liz, for going to all the effort that you do go to to try and find illustrations for us, travelling around the countryside, going to iron factories to collect iron filings. I mean, I, I thought about that, you know, the extent of that effort to get that one illustration to you so you could remember the truth of God's word. That takes commitment, and I just want to commend you, Liz, for your commitment to us and your love of us. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I didn't do the same thing today. I didn't run around the countryside looking for an illustration. I'm just going to pick up one of the ideas that uh, Liz talked about last week. And like the, that, that first part of Ephesians, as Liz said, is loaded with beautiful spiritual blessings which are, are applicable to our lives today. And um, I, I, I was reading through it and I thought, well... What I'm going to deal with one more, and, and I decided today that I would um, deal with the adoption into the family of God. So we're going to actually focus on our adoption into the family of God today. That's the, the, the idea that I want to pick up today and talk to you about, the fact that we are one family, that we are all members of that one family through the adoption of the Father. He adopted us into his family. So we now all brothers and sisters in one family, that family is the family of God. And so there is a commonality about us that is stronger than our biological um, um, heritage. Um, You might say, well, you know, I'm an African because I've got dark skin and you're a whitey because you're trying to be African with your spots on you. You know what? There is something stronger than our biological um, heritage. destiny it's our spiritual line the family of origin biologically doesn't weight as heavily as our spiritual family and you know it our spiritual family lasts a whole lot longer than our biological family our biological family has roots in history and comes up to where we are standing today and say well here i am a member of the reed clan from from some scottish tribe yeah, yonks ago, and you know, ach oh man, I used to be a Scotsman back in my old days, you know. But you know what? The, the thing that overrides that is the fact that I'm born of the Spirit of God, and now I'm a child of God. That makes a whole lot of difference. And I'm going to be a child of God till I die, and I'll be a child of God from when I die right through in eternity. I'll still be a child of God, and my brothers and sisters in the faith will be my brothers and sisters in eternity as well. And that's a longer, lot longer time than we spend here in the few 80 years that we have here. We lived 80 or 80 or 90 years here. You know, our spiritual family is much stronger than our physical family. So I want to talk to you about the adoption into this family today. We're going to go to our passage of Scripture, and it's in Ephesians chapter, five, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. So read with me. In this it says, um, Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So here we have Paul telling us that God has predestined us to be adopted as his children into the family through Jesus Christ. 
And that was his good pleasure. He decided to do that. He decided to adopt us into his family. And that now we have been accepted into the beloved. So this beautiful, lovely family that, that is uh, coming out of God has become part of us and we are part of it. We are part of the family of God because of this adoption. Romans says it this way. Paul says in Romans chapter, five, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by it we cry, Abba, Father. Now, we lose the significance of this word when we, when we read it in, in the English, Abba, Father, because the word Abba in the, is a Greek word that means Daddy. So we get a, a close understanding when you look at that and, and translate it to what it would be in English. Paul is actually saying that we have been brought, the Spirit of God has brought us into a relationship with Father God, the creator of all things, to the point where we can call him Daddy. And Daddy is a, a, a term that a child would talk to their father. So when Nathan was uh, small, I'd say, come to Daddy. And he would run to me and he'd jump into my arms and I'd carry him. Or I'd go somewhere and he wanted to go with Daddy. Daddy's going somewhere I want to go. So he's having a, a separation anxiety because he wants to be with his Daddy. And the, the term Daddy is typically a childish term to refer to of a child to a father. You know, not very many Young men or young women call their parents daddy or mummy when they get older. It's usually mum or dad, you know. But some do. But it's usually used of infant children towards their, to show that sense of closeness there. So that's the relationship that we've been brought into. However, when we go back to the scripture, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, there's an elephant in the room. And I want to talk about the elephant in the room. And the elephant is the word predestined. Because predestined or predestination has this sort of effect where it kind of says, okay, if God predetermined that those who should be called sons would be sons and daughters and those who didn't wouldn't be. So there's a question with regard to what did Paul mean by when God predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters? What did he mean? Did he mean that some are predestined to be sons and daughters and some are predestined to go to hell? Did he mean that it's God's choice? That it's God's choice. You're not really involved in the exercise at all. Really, God determines that you'll be saved and God determines if you'll be damned. And if you're one of the unfortunate ones that God determines you'll be damned, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't do anything about it because God has already predetermined, predestined that you'll be damned, not saved. There's a doctrine out there that says that. You might know of it. Or is the question of predestination something to do with my choice? So that I have a choice in the exercise. So that I determine what and when and it's completely up to me. As though, look, I can choose God and I can choose to accept him and I can choose to give my life to Jesus and I'll choose to do that when I choose to do that. You know, if I want to live my life in the world and live in the flesh and do all the things that the flesh wants to do and just before I die, turn my life to Jesus and say, Jesus, come into my life. I've lived my life for the sin now. I come to you and I want heaven when I die, you know. It's up to me when I choose to ask Jesus into my I have control over that. So the first idea says God is sovereignly in control of the whole thing and you don't have a choice. And the second idea says I'm sovereignly in control of the situation. At the end of the exercise, I can choose when to accept Jesus Christ. 
as my personal saviour. There are two ideas that are batted around in church circles with regard to predestination to the adoption of sons. One is that God is sovereignly in control of that, and the other is that you have some partner. They have two names. One is Calvinism. It's the idea that God is, you don't have a free will. God's in charge of the whole thing. And the other idea is Arminiist, and it says that you are in control of the exercise. Or is there a third option? Like it's our choice. That God is choosing and predestining and working, and we have to respond to his work. So it's not God is in control of this thing and not me. And it's not me, I'm in control of this and I'm just, God is just waiting for him. But God is working and I am working at the same time. Philippians tends to imply that in, the, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And we read these words, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul is writing to the Philippians and saying to them, Look, as you've obeyed when I've been there with you, now when I'm absent, obey as well, he say, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the word work there is to sweat, to do labor, to sweat. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God which works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he said, you have to work out what God is working in within you. So you are both working. God is working inside of you and you are working on the outside, cooperating with God on the outside. So there's both working there. So I want to talk about this whole idea of being a son of God and look at what it what it is that God is doing. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, it says that we know that, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose. And then he says these words, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. So he throws the idea that God foreknows something and then he predestines something. Now, I want to explain this to you. He says, he said that you might be conformed to the likeness of his son and that you might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, he said he foreknew and then he predestined. So God, we know, lives in the eternal realm. There's no past and there's no present in the eternal realm. It is now. God lives in the process of now. So he can see past and he can see present and he can see future all at the moment, because he lives in the now. So when he foreknows something, it's because he looks and he can see what you can do in the future, even though you don't know what you're going to do, he knows what you're going to do. So when God looks at all of you, he knows the day of your birth, the day of your conception, and he knows the day of your death. And he knows all the things that you will do all the way through your life, right to the point that you die, or the point that he comes back again. He knows, he sees it all. He foreknows your life. If you read Psalm 139, it tells you that all the members of your, of your um, body were, were written in his book and all the things that you were doing, he knew them already. He knows them. They're written in his book. He already knows. You say, well, if they're already written in the book, then I don't have a choice in the matter. No, just because he foreknows something doesn't say that you don't have a choice in the matter. To foreknow something does not mean that he determines something for you. He knows what you will do. 
Now, I know that I could approach certain people here and I could say to somebody, you know, I want you to come up and do such and such and such. And if I pick the right person, I know exactly what their response will be. Why? Because I know them. I could foreknow, I could say, okay, Ruth, I don't want you to smile. It's, it's going to be really difficult for you. I say, no, she's just a grinny girl. So if I say, Ruth, don't smile, I know she will smile. I foreknow that when I ask her, don't smile. I foreknow she's going to smile because she can't get about, you know, you look at me, you talk to me, I've got to smile. So I foreknow something, but I don't determine that for her. Because I know she's going to do it, I don't make her do it. She chooses to do that. So if she's getting now really strong, I say, Ruth, don't smile. She's going to, it's really hard, isn't it? Because I foreknow you're going to do it. You see, she's saying, oh, I said, stop it. She's just pulling my cheeks up like that. Because you foreknow something doesn't mean that you determine that she's going to do it. If she's very angry with me and she's upset with me, she may not smile at all. I can't determine that for her. I might foreknow her, dispens- uh, her attitude, but I can't, I'm not making her do it. So it's the same way with God. God can see what we will do, but he doesn't determine that we do it. We determine that we do it. He knows what we will do. Do you get the difference? Because if you, if you are not involved in this exercise and you, you, you say, take Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, God worketh all things to the counsel of his will. So what do I have to play in this? Nothing. God works all things to the counsel of his own will. Well, we we know he does. But he doesn't determine your choices. You determine your choices. He just knows what your choices will be. So you go to hell because you determine to go to hell, not because he determines you to go to hell, because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to him. So it's not his will that any should perish, it says in Scripture. So God for you does not mean that he determined for you, but that he knew beforehand what you would determine to do. And according to that foreknowledge, he predestined. So it's like this. He could see that you decided to follow him. And so when you're coming to a door, if you like, there's a door there and a sign above the door and it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You look up there, I'm making a decision to choose Jesus. As I walk through the door and I come through the other side, I'm now in eternity. And when I look at the the back of the door in eternity, it says, I called you, I predestined you, I knew you. Why? Because from eternity, God knows the beginning from the end. That's the way it is. We don't, we're caught in time. We're making choices that he knows the choices that we'll make. And he's working with us to make, help us to make the right choices. In Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 12, we read these words, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So God is not selective in his grace. He's not saying, okay, I choose you, but I don't choose you. I choose you, but I don't you choose you. I, I like you and I like you, but no, I'm sorry, I don't like you. He's not actually going around saying, I'm being selective here. Like there is some limited... Uh, you know, space, and I'm only going to choose the ones that I want to choose. He's not doing that because his grace has appeared to all men. And you can't get saved without grace. And if his grace has appeared to all men, all men have had an opportunity for the grace of God to come to them. His grace has appeared to all men, teaching us to say, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So God's work is seen here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, when when in the fullness of time, 
was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those under the law. And that was what the work that he was doing to get us to a place where we could come to him. He had to deal with the uh, problem of sin. And Jesus came to die on the cross so that he could redeem us, buy us back from from the, the devil, that we might receive the full rights of son. So he did that so that we could be brought into the family again. We were once in the family of God. We lost that right because Satan fell. I mean, so Adam and Eve fell. We lost our right as children. And now when Jesus has come back, he brings us back to the family. He brings us back into the family. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says, And you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In 1 John, we read this about uh, being a son and daughter of God. It says in verse three, chapter 3 verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are right now, presently, we are children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So he says, we're kind of out of whack with the world now because we are of a different family. This world is of one family and we are of a new family. This family is God's family. So we're going to be out of whack with the world. So if you go out from this place today and you go go into the marketplace tomorrow, go back into school and you feel that you're kind of out of place. The world is doing all the worldly things and you kind of don't fit in. Don't worry about that. That's because you are a child of God, because you belong to a different family. If you were to fit in with the world out there and you do everything that the world was doing out there and you would just get down and party and have all the stuff that going on in your life that the world is going on, you wouldn't be part of this family. You would be part of a different family. Because you are in this family, you are not going to be accepted in the family of the world. Okay? You're not going to find a place to rest out there because there's no home out there for you. Your home is in heaven. This is not your city out there. Your city is in heaven. You are strangers and you're foreigners and you're aliens. You're refugees here in this place until heaven comes. That's where your home is. He says in verse 2, he says, But dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. He's our brother, and we'll be like him. When Jesus comes back, we'll be looking like Jesus. You like that idea? You'll be looking like Jesus when he comes back. For we shall see him as he is. And then it says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. We keep on cleaning ourselves. We, we keep on taking the, the necessary action to clean our lives because we know that Jesus is pure. And so we clean our lives, we cleanse ourselves from the things that corrupt us so that we can be like him. In John chapter 12, 1 verses 12 to 13, here's an interesting verse that that shows us the combination of the fact that you have to do something and that God is doing something in this whole being born into the family of God. You can't just think that you can make a decision and, and, and that will be fine. God has to be involved in this whole process. So let's have a look at this. It says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then he says, children born not of natural descent. That means my son cannot become a Christian because his father was a Christian. 
you know, your children are not Christian because you are Christian. It's, it's wrong to think that just because you have children and you're a Christian that your babies are Christians as well. They are not Christian. They may be covered by your Christian principles, but they are not Christian until they give their life to Jesus and have faith in Jesus themselves. And when they have done that, at the age of accountability, when they understand what they're doing, then you can baptize them. You baptize them accordingly. You don't baptize children because he's a baby. He just baptizes. I wanted to be Christian. Baptism is on the confession of your faith. It's not on the sprinkling of water because you want it to be a Christian. It doesn't make it a Christian. Sprinkling water on a child doesn't make it a Christian. Your confession of the mouth and your believing in the heart, that's what changes your life. And so he says here, he says, born of God, not of natural descent, nor of human decision. You can't just change your mind, you know, like, like you know, you've been going along and say, I think I'll become a Christian now. This has changed my mind, you know, like it's up to you. You can't do it. It's not about human decision. Well, well, what, well Mark, you said, it, you know, you have to make, yeah, you do, but you have to make a, a decision in response to what God is doing with you. If you don't make a decision when God is responding to you and talking to you and he walks away from you, you can't make a decision to get back there again. You've got to find God again. You've got to seek for God again. You've got to respond for God when he's speaking to, to you. So you have to think about this. It's not your decision that makes you born of God. You see, nor of a husband, well, I can't force you to become a Christian. You are my wife and I'm a pastor, so you will be Christian. I force you, I command it. They can't do it. Scripture says you can't. It's, you can't force a person by a husband's will to be Christian. It just doesn't work that way. You can't be born a Christian. You can't choose to be a Christian. You can't force somebody to be a Christian. You are born of God. God is in the process of doing that. So God is in the process of doing it, and you are in the process of doing it. It's not just you doing your own thing. It's God doing his thing and you responding to God. That's what makes the difference. Now let's have a look at this word, and this is fine writing. We're looking at the word to receive, them who received. Now this is very fine print, and I know you're going to complain because you can't read it. Exercise your eyes, look at it very hard, and then focus in on it. See if you can focus. That's good. It's called eye exercises. The word is lambano in the, in the Greek. To receive, to lambano, to receive something. It, almost, it also means to take, and it has all these ideas. To take, to take with the hand. Lay hold of any personal thing. So if I walk up to Angela and I say, give me a hand, and I grab a hand like that and I pull out of that, I have lambanoed her. Now if I grab her and seize her, that would be, I would seize her. That's a different one. It's a strong word. It's catalambano. It's strong. But if I take a hand, I just hold a hand like that, I take her. I make a choice, I do something to take her hand. That's lambano. This is the word that's used here. So I am involved in the exercise. If you go through this thing, it says, it says to take in order to carry away, to take what is one's own, to take to oneself, to make one's own, to claim, to procure for oneself. You know, you are actively involved in this process of lambano. So when it says, to them that received him, you have to take Jesus. You have to put your hand on Jesus. You have to take him for yourself. 
Jesus is not going to be taken unless you do something about it. You can sit there for 100 years and Jesus can be talking to you and say, will you receive me as your, your personal saviour? And you can sit there and he can look at you and you've got to do something to take Jesus. If you sit there and do nothing, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. You have to receive him. And then if you receive him, if you take him, then you're given the right to become a child of God. You understand that? You have to do something. But it's not governed by what you do. It's governed by what God does. And God determines the choice because he's saying to you, I'll give you a choice right now. Respond. That's when you can exercise your choice. That's when you can say, I'll take that. There are two things we're told in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 21. When Acts is talking about, when Paul is talking about uh, his life there, or Luke is actually referring to what Paul was doing, he said, You know that, and this is Paul speaking, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he outlines those two ideas, repentance and faith. They are the two foundational, the two beginning ideas of You know, I want to become a child of God. What must I do? I must have repentance and I must have faith to become a child of God. Really? All right. Let's have a look at repentance and faith. And let's just see how God does his work in those things and how we do our work in those things. All right. Repentance. It's a gift from God. So you cannot change, because repentance means change. You cannot change unless God gives you the gift of repentance. Well, that means he's in control of that. Yes, that would mean that he's in control of that. That means that you cannot turn away from your life of sin and follow him unless you are given the opportunity to clear your mind up and to change, unless you're given an alternative. You cannot turn from a pathway of sin and turn to righteousness unless he gives you the ability to do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it says, In meekness, instructing those who oppose you themselves, oppose themselves, if God preadventure will give them repentance. So anybody who is opposing Paul, he says, Look, pray for them. He says that God may give them, grant them repentance, because repentance is a gift to the knowledge of the truth. Yet we know it's not just a gift. It's a command as well. So now that makes it bigger than just a gift. Because if it's just a gift, I can give it to you. I can give it to you. I'm not going to give it to you, but I'll give it to you. Like God will be selective in who he gives this gift to. But the scripture doesn't say that God is selective in giving the gift of repentance to people. It says in Acts chapter 17 verse 30, it says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. So God is actually saying, you know what? Here's a command for all men at all times. In the past, he says, I winked at what you were doing. He says in Acts chapter 30, he says, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So God is saying, you, none of you are going to get the excuse that I didn't give you an opportunity. You are commanded to repent. Now, whether you choose to repent or not is up to you. We're told in Matthew chapter 3, 8, when when, um, John was preaching on repentance, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, he, the Pharisees came to him and he looked at the Pharisees and says, you bring forth fruit of repentance. Start to live your life which is consistent with being repentant. 
They had the power to do it. He says, you've come for baptism. He says, now go away and you exercise that repentance in your life. So what it is, God gives us this gift of repentance. He initiates it. He gives you an opportunity. Then it's up to you to exercise that opportunity. Do you get that? When God gives you an opportunity, it's it's behoved on you to exercise that opportunity. I say, get out of here. There's a fire in the place. Get out quickly, quickly. Get out, get out. Quick, 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 quick. quick. Everyone out, 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 out. There's a fire in the place. (laughs) You're all burned. None of you moved. You say, I gave you an opportunity. I opened the door and gave you an opportunity to run. I said, get out, quick. None of you moved. You missed your opportunity. Look, it's similar to that. God gives you an idea. He gives you an opportunity. But you play with God. You play with God like he is never going to leave you, that he's always going to be there. So when God speaks to you, you play with him. You say, oh, well, not today, tomorrow. Just wait. We're in. Oh, oh, well, tomorrow I'll repent. Tomorrow I'll, I know I ought to repent. It's, it's in my heart. I know that God has been speaking to me to change, to turn around. I know I need to do that. I can feel the conviction on, of it in my spirit. I know inside I should do it. But you know what? One last hit. One last little bit of drugs. One last little drink. One last little fling. Just one more little thing. And we played this game with God, which says, you know what? God... I don't think that you are really in control of this. I'm in control. You have made a grave mistake. Huge mistake. Because God gives you a gift. He doesn't have to give it to you twice. He gives you an opportunity. If he gives it to you and he's long-suffering, he gives it to you again and again. It's his grace But he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to give it to you twice. It's You need to listen. You need to listen to him and you need to let him direct your life and let him change you. It's a gift and it's a command. He gives it to you and if it's a command, he empowers you to obey by his Holy Spirit. You can obey. What about faith? Well, faith is a gift and a command as well. We're told in Romans chapter 12, verses, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given to me, unto me, to every man that is among you, and women as well, not to think of himself more highly than they ought to think, but with sober judgment, uh, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And so he's saying, God has dealt to every person a measure of faith. When you think about it, it's true. I mean, who, who do we know that knows all things? There's only one person I know that knows all things, and who's that? God. So because everybody is not God, no one knows all things. So, so we have to, to a degree, extend ourselves in faith. I, I didn't know that you were going to come here today. I didn't know for sure. I had a bit of foreknowledge that most, most of you would come, but I didn't know for sure you were going to come. So I, last night and last week, I started preparing a sermon to speak to you. In faith, believing that you would be here today, I began to prepare a sermon. I didn't know for sure 
that I was going to live long enough to be here to preach a sermon. But in faith, believing that I would, I prepared a sermon to, to speak to you. We exercise that sort of faith every day. You sit on a chair because you had faith to believe that the chair would hold you up and not fall down. You wouldn't have sat there if it wasn't there, you know. If you didn't have faith to believe it was going to hold you up, you wouldn't lower yourself onto it. You have a natural and a general faith that's consistent there. Now that faith, when it's touched with God and he starts to breathe into it, he says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You are commanded, Jesus commands us in, in, Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. He says, have faith in God. That's a command. That's an imperative. It's an imperative. It says, have faith in God. That's a direct command. Tell him, you have to have faith in God. He's not saying if you'd like to, if you please. He says, have faith in God. So it's a gift. Every man is given a measure of faith. And it's also a command, just like repentance. He's telling you, exercise your faith in me now. So where does faith come from? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. So faith for salvation comes from a revelation of God's word to you. You get that revelation of God's word and immediately faith rises in your heart, begins to rise in your heart. You have faith to believe. So faith is a gift. It's also a command. In Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 11, it says, for, we, for, with, for with the heart the man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Which then throws it back again to the fact that God gives you a gift, he gives you a command, and he expects you to be one of the whosoever. You choose. Whosoever believes will not be ashamed. Now listen. What does this mean? In James chapter 2 verses 20 to, and verse 22 and 26, it says faith without works is completely dead. So we're not talking about believing something. You know, I believe that the sky is blue. It's a passive believing. Just believe it's blue. This is not a passive believing. Faith is not something that is inactive. Faith, biblical faith, faith for salvation is something that is very active. In fact, you can't have faith for salvation just by nodding your head and saying, okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You know what? The devil does that. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God and he shudders. Ooh, he's the Son of God. That faith doesn't save him, but he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you've got to do something more than just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to actually do something to get saved. You have to repent and you have to have faith that takes action. Faith that will complete your belief, that completes your work. Faith that is just not words, it's action. So you are involved in the process. Don't sit here and say, oh, well, God isn't the one who's going to save and I'll be saved if God wants me to be saved and I'll be damned if God wants me to be damned. No, 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 no. You have a choice to make in this whole exercise. And you make those choices every day. And you're warned in Scripture about those choices. There's an accountability that's in the whole book of, the, the book of Hebrews. Accountability tells us quite clearly we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Why? Because if you don't pay careful attention, you'll just drift out with the tide. You know, the devil keep working at you, and before you know it, you'll be far away from where you ought to be. 
If you don't pay special attention to your life and pay special attention to putting yourself in the place where God wants you to do and follow the leading of His Spirit and follow the guidance, you know what? Before long, you will drift away. Everybody else will be where they're meant to be, but you won't be. You'll be somewhere else. And that won't be because you just, uh, you just drifted because you didn't take the right action. There's an accountability. If it was all God's choice, there would be no accountability. There was nothing you could do to determine it, nothing you could do to stop it. It would already be stamped. It would already be done. There's nothing you could do about it. You're saved. You're going to heaven. There's nothing you can do about it. But the scripture tells you very clearly that you have accountability, that you better listen to him and that you better pay attention he says in verse 3 in the Hebrews chapter 2, how, you, how shall you escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed by, to us by those who heard of him. He says, how will you escape if you neglect it? So you have the accountability. You have a, a, something you have to do about this. In Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 8, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here we have God speaking to you. This week, think about it. It happens every week. You're tempted. Every, every person here in this room was tempted this, this week. And in the midst of that temptation, you made a choice. You made a choice to listen to the Spirit speaking to you. Even if it was your conscience, and your conscience says you shouldn't do that, you made a choice to override it or you made a choice to agree with it. If God told you to do something specifically by his spirit, you made a choice to obey him or you made a choice to disobey him. You made a choice. Every one of us here made a choice this week. Made a number of choices this week. The question, are you making a choice to habitually obey him or are you making a choice to habitually refuse him? That's the question. You're actually accountable for the choices that you make. God knows what choices you are making. You don't know what the outcome is at the end, really. But I can tell you now, if you search and seek after God with all your heart, it will be in the right place in the end. If you stop seeking after God, you may drift out and be away and find out that you are where you don't want to be in the end. There's no rip. It's like, you know, you've seen these elevators that go up into Myers. You stand on the elevators, you know, the elevators. You come out and you stand there, you know, and down you go. Christian life is like standing on an elevator. From the bottom of it, you start walking up the elevator. If you stop in your walk, which way are you going? Down. Because there's the tendency down. You stop walking up that elevator, guess what? If you want to go, if you want to go up to the top, you have to exert ex- extra, extra energy to run up the elevator. Who here has run up the elevator from the bottom up to the top? Oh, you wild, wild. You, Claudia Bamford, that's a wow. Did you know that, Mum? You probably were there with her, running with her. Terrible. Listen, Christian life is like standing on an elevator. You're either running up, or you are going back. So you have to exert some level of exercise in your Christian walk to get up to the top. 
If you don't, you are drifting away. Any standing still on the elevator of Christian life means that you are drifting out the door, not coming in the door, which is a very serious thing when you think about it. I want to be facing Jesus, walking toward Jesus when he comes back again. Do you want to be doing that? I don't want to be facing Jesus, slipping away from Jesus when he comes back again. That's not a safe place to be. I want to be looking at him, running toward him, saying, here I am, catch me. Sorry? Yeah. You've got to be on the right elevator, yeah. (laughs) Okay, now let's talk about the adoption metaphor. Because adoption is very important. This is just to close. I want to talk about this whole idea of adoption. So the first part of this sermon was to say that you're adopted because it was God's initiation. He wanted you to be adopted into the family and you have a part to play in that. Okay? God is giving you repentance and God is giving you grace and God is giving you faith and he's expecting you to operate and, and, and exercise repentance. He's expecting you to live under his grace and be taught by his grace and he's expecting you to walk in faith. He's expecting you to do things. So God is doing all he can do to save you and you have to do all that you can do to save yourself as well. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Both God and you must work at this. You get that. All right, let's talk about this adoption because it gives us a better picture of, of this whole idea of what God is doing. Now, the adoption picture is a Roman picture. It's not like adoption in today's age. You know, oh, what a beautiful baby. I want that baby. I'm going to adopt that baby. Adoption in the Roman world was with young adults, not with children. There's no record of any children being adopted in the Roman world. They were always, always just finished their adolescent years. So they'd come out of their adolescent years and they were young men, usually young men, no, not many records of young women, usually young men who were being adopted. So it wasn't something that a child was adopted like, you, like we adopt a child today. So it's completely different to adoption today. So this is the story of adoption. The first thing that you've got to learn about adoption is it, it is not for the status of the individual who's being adopted. It's not for the child, not for the young man. The person who's adopted, it was to continue the family line and and its practices. It was not for the protection and the maintenance of the one being adopted. I wouldn't say, oh, you poor little person who's been working for you, don't have much hope. I tell you what, I'll adopt you so you can be safe and secure. No, 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 no. That wasn't the whole idea of it. You see, in adoption, in Roman adoption, you weren't, if you were an adopted person, you were not the focus The thing that was the focus was the family into which you were being adopted and what you could bring to the family. So the emphasis was not on you and your your position and what was good for you. The emphasis was what was good for the family and how you would benefit the family. That was the premise on which you were adopted. You were adopted because because the man, the father saw something inside of you and he said, I I want that, that's good for the family, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to come into the family because you can bring that into the family. It was for the good of the family, not for your own personal good. Think that one through, follow that through. When you get saved, you do not get saved for your own personal good. It's though that you are the end of the exercise. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now it's me and my life and my future and my prosperity and my ministry and my, 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 me. No, that was not the point of the adoption. 
Adoption was that you were brought into the family, that you could contribute to the family. It was good for the family. So it's you for the family, not the family for you. You get that? You understand that? It's a different it's a different angle. We live in such an egocentric world that we have made everything about us, me, mine, my what. Oh, it's just so sickening to see people who are so captivated with themselves. And so the whole world, the universe itself is revolving around moi. Well, if you live where I live and everybody adores me, you'll just know what it's like to be the center of all things. You know, some of you think that. Seriously, you think that if, it, if it's not revolving around you, it's like children. When children come, so little, lovely, she's a lovely little daughter, your little Miriam, but she's so young. Where's she? Not there. She's so, she's the, the little one, and she cries, doesn't she? She cries. You know, the girls are going to go out to, to choir practice, and no, I want to go too. And she, she will let you know that she's in the center of the whole world and while she's crying, she wants you to give in to her so that she can have her way. Now, listen, this is difficult because if you keep on giving in to a child all the time like that, when they get older, they think that the whole world will obey me if I shout loud enough or if I scream loud enough. That's why you teach and train children to be part of a family, to work with the family and to be part of the family, not to be the whole family doesn't revolve around children. It revolves around itself. Now, there's wisdom in that because a child is not brought into the family for the child. The child is brought into the family for the family. You understand that? Now, of course you have to be kind and generous and caring for little children because they don't understand. Nathan used to scream and yell because I wouldn't take him some places at different times. And I'd said, I'll take you and I'd go driving out and he'd stand there. You said that you would take me. Standing there two years old, I said, okay, I'll take you for a drive. Come in the car and I'd have to go around the block and then he would be happy because I said he could go for a drive. You, know? you do that. You play those games with your children. But listen, there's a difference between playing that game with your children and showing them that you care for them and spending your whole life revolving around them as though they were the center of all things. Adoption was never about the child being the center. It was always about the family and the good that that child would bring to the family. Ask yourself this question, what good am I bringing to the family of God? Why have I been added to the family of God? What good am I contributing to? To the family, what would the father see in me that he would want in the family of God? What am I contributing to the family of God? Because that's the idea behind adoption. The first thing, it's benefit to the family. So the focus was on the benefits to the family as the whole going through this process of adoption. Okay, this is the process of adoption. Then it was initiated by the father. Not by the son. So here we have this idea that God has to initiate it. Otherwise, we can't respond to him. And we know that God, it says in scripture that he chose us and we didn't choose him. He initiated it. Jesus had to come from glory. I mean, before, before we could save ourselves, we had to have someone who would die for our sins. And when we were dead in our transgression and sins, Jesus died for us, loving us so much that he would... Take the initiative to die for us. So he took the initiative. 
The father has to take the initiative. The father was asked when the adoption took place, he was asked in front of everybody, the father was asked if he wished the person he was going to be, to, going to be adopted to be his lawful son. They asked, do you want this person to be your lawful son? And his response was, you betcha, I want him. I want her. I want them to be in my family. So he had to actually say that. And we know that God has already said he wants you because he says he's not willing that any should perish. So we know that he wills you to be saved. Okay? He wants you to be saved. He's not, de- he's not desirous that you be lost. So we know the Father's will. And then the young adult was asked if he wanted to, it to be so. So that's the, this is the interesting thing. It's not just the Father who says, you will be my son and that's it. I'm determining that. No. Then the, the young person was asked, do you want to be part of that family? He had a choice in the matter. Isn't that interesting? Because that's the same with salvation. To them, that received him. To them, he gave the power to become children of God. You have to actually take this on. It's not just God determining for you and initiating it and and setting it over you. You have to play something in this role. You have to determine that you want to be part to this. You have to choose. You have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm submitting to you, Jesus. And then the people were asked whether they were pleased with it. <laughs> I don't have, you, know, you, want to get, you want to get saved, Vicky? Oh, wait, wait a minute. Are we all happy that Vicky gets saved? Let's have a raise of hands. Oh, there's a, yeah, I think we've got a majority. You can get saved. <laughs> no, I don't know how that works. But anyway, we have to, a part to play in the whole process, I think, as a body. Okay, what changes took place at adoption? Well, the one being adopted lost all his power as an individual. The will of the father became a central thing. So if you were adopted into the family, if I adopted you into the family, you, had, you, you lost everything. You lost your, your individuality. You lost your right to determine. The last choice that you made was the last choice that you would ever make. The choice to become part of the family was the last choice that you would make. All the other choices would be made for you by the father once you're in the family. He would determine for you what you were to do. It would, the father's will was paramount. So the person who came into the family, then when the father says, I've adopted you, therefore I want you to do this, this and this, that was not negotiable. When you accepted to come into the family, it was for obedience sake. That's a very powerful idea, isn't it? It basically says that when you become a Christian, don't think that you can determine what you will do to argue against God. As far as God is concerned, when you adopted you into the family and you said you want to be part of the family, when he said to you jump, your only response would be how high, not whether you would or not. Because a complete obedience was his expected attitude in adoption. All the property and the debts of the, the one being adopted passed from, to the father. So daddy would pay them. So for instance, say that um, we were to, going to adopt um, Ruby and Ray into the family. We'll take Ray first. We're going to take Ray, Ray and adopt him into the family. And he'd say maybe he, had a lot, he was bankrupt. It's not true, I know. He's bankrupt. And the, and the, and the, and the people are knocking at his door. Now, I've determined that he can bring benefit to the family, so I've offered him to come into the family, and he's chosen to accept that offer, and he's now become my son. 
Well, what happens to all his debts? They now become my debts. They are the father's debts. He has to make payment for his debts. He's not... They come knocking at his door and say, Ray, Ray, you have to pay, Ray. And Ray says, sorry, the Ray that you're looking for no longer exists. You better go and see my dad. And so they'd have to go to the father. And the father was responsible for his debts. Oh, just another wrinkle too. You have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the account. When you adopted, that money became moi. It's mine. So you didn't have anything when you came, you, when, you, when you accepted that. Everything that you had as property became mine and everything that you owed became mine. Whoa. Now that's a powerful picture, isn't it? But that's what Roman adoption was. And that's why Paul took this because it's exactly what God expects. He says, when you get saved, do not think that you own yourself or that you own anything. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to God. Everything you have belongs to God. Not just 10%. Everything you have belongs to God. Every relationship you have belongs to God. Everything you have. All your debts are covered. All the bills are covered. Everything that you owe is covered. But everything you have belongs to God. God now, you do not exist as you did. It's changed now. You're a child of God. Boy, that makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? That means the career that I'm looking for really is not my career. It's his career. That house that I think I own really isn't my house. It's his house. That mortgage I own isn't really that mortgage. It's his mortgage. I really don't own anything. No, you own one thing. Your choice to obey. That's all you got. Your choice to obey. You've come into a new family now. Oh, not a lot of people like this whole idea. I don't think I like adoption anymore. I was kind of hoping I could have my own little things on the side and be part of this nice family as well. No, 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 that's not the picture of adoption. The Roman picture of adoption says the person who was being adopted lost all obligation to the old family because it was considered his old identity was extinguished. So you can say, oh, I want to go back and visit my kids or my family back, you know, family of origin. No longer existed as far as God was concerned or gone. So when your mother from a different one comes knocking at your door, you know, or your father, you know, from your old daddy comes knocking at your door and says, hey, Kathy, remember, you're my daughter. You know, I'd like you to do this. You know, we used to do this a long time ago. We used to, that's how we used to get down, Kathy. Can't you remember that? I had special treats for you. Remember, I used to spoil you with these things. And, and what does Kathy say to old daddy? I have a new daddy now. This old daddy's gone. He's been taken away. And in a very real sense, I received a new father. The old father is dead. You know, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And then his children, he says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Clearly, he saw the difference. You've got to choose who your daddy is. You've got to choose who your daddy is. 
This week, when, when someone has come knocking at your door, temptation's knocking at your door, and it's saying, come on, let's do it like we used to do it. You know, let's do it like we used to do it. You have to ask yourself the question, who's controlling this exercise now? Am I going to be daddy's girl or am I going to be the devil's girl? What am I going to do now? Am I going to be my new daddy's son or am I going to be the devil's offspring? What am I going to do now? Some of you like to live in the devil's offspring and think that you can come to church on Sunday and be daddy's offspring on Sunday. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. It's not that way. God sees it all from the beginning. You are either his or you are not his. You have, to make a, you have to make a choice today and think about that today. Look, when he speaks to you, be a child of God. Don't opt for a halfway place because by opting for a halfway place, you're actually saying to God, Father God, you know what? The devil's my father. And you're actually saying it to his face, not, face, not by what you say from your lips, but by your actions. You are living it in front of him. You're saying, I'll show you what I really believe by what I do. My faith will be shown and completed by my actions. And in your actions, you show that the devil is your controller, not God. So by your faith, which is completed by your actions, you may mouth words of loyalty to Jesus, but you may live loyalty to the devil. And I want to... God sees the difference and he knows the difference and he's keeping a tally of the difference. Adoption cuts out the choice for you. If you are a child of God, that's what you are. There is no choice when the devil comes knocking. When the family of origin comes knocking and says, you used to, used to like doing this. You used to enjoy doing this. There's no choice. That person is dead now no longer alive and has no hold on you. You can walk away. You're free now in Jesus. But you're not really free. You're free to be the son of God, a daughter of God, to do what he says. That's your level of freedom, obedience. So in a, really, in a basic sense and in the most literal sense, <clears throat> we're told here that we've got a new father. The father was liable. <clears throat> the father... <clears throat> Whatever jumped from Martin jumped into me. Cut it out, Martin. What are you doing? Have you got any more of those lollies? Don't worry about it. I know they were all gone. Um, <clears throat> so we got a new father. The father was liable for the, his new son's actions, was allowed to discipline and had full control over his son. So you know what? When you do something, God is the one that is seen to be doing it. And how often is that the case? You know, you sit there and say, you call yourself a Christian and then people criticize the faith or criticize God because of what you do. They say, God is liable for your actions. You know, obviously Christianity is nothing because, you know, look at this life. You know, it's not lived according to what the word of God says. You know, so, you know, they can defame God, the Father, because they look at your life. And God has to deal with that. And so he reserves the right to discipline you because he loves you. So when you step out of line, don't be surprised if God doesn't step up to you and give you a whack behind the ear. If he doesn't produce hardship in your life. 
The Bible says, endure hardship is discipline because God loves you and he's disciplined you as sons. What? As sons. Because you are part of his family and you're, you're not walking according to the line. He allows hardship to come on you so that you could get yourself focused. He says, look, this is not going to get easier for you. It's only going to get harder if you keep on walking the wrong way. Turn around and walk the right way and things will get better. Sometimes. There's men a change in status for the son. So while I didn't mean anything else in terms of property, there was a status change. What does status mean? You, you, you come from here and you're placed up in here. You have a greater status. You don't own anything, but you're a prince or a princess because you're a child of the king. That's a whole lot better than being someone who's not a prince or a princess. So you have a lift. Everything that the king owns belongs to you and everything that you own belongs to the king. You're important because the king loves you and he's looking out for you. He set his gaze upon you. He's your father. He looks after you. So you have a status difference. This is the next amazing thing. It says, once someone is adopted, the bonds could not be broken in adoption. So if daddy adopted you and you agreed to that adoption, and once you become that daddy's child, that could not be reversed. To me, it goes to show you the incredible love that God has for you, that he will keep on, you can keep pushing that line with him, but listen to me. He's going to get the ante up on you and work harder and harder on you to make sure you come to it, because he, he doesn't want to break that thing that connection with you. It's a strong connection. What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is working with us. So what are the implications for your life, friends? This beautiful truth, read it in two verses. He predestined us to the adoption of sons. Look how deep that is. Look how rich that is. Look at the depth of the implications on our life. What does that, just those two lines, mean for you and me today? What will it mean tomorrow when we go out into the world tomorrow? I'll tell you what it will mean. You can't live for yourself any longer. You can't be determining for yourself any longer. From this time on, it's got to be daddy and what daddy wants. Because you are a child and daddy has determination over your life. Now you might be sitting here and you might be thinking, you know, I don't think I want to be a Christian. That's, that's a little bit too high for me. That's your choice. You can choose not to walk this path. The options aren't very good though. And the consequences of those options aren't very good. I think the best result is, wow, the king of glory has just owned me. I am owned. I belong to a family. I want to live like I belong to this family. I want to walk like this family walks. I want to talk like this family talks. I want to be like this family is. I want to be pleasing to my father.
That's the implication. But it's very strong. Just the one thing, you're adopted now. Everything that you used to be involved with is finished. It's completely gone. As far as God sees, it's gone. You are new. You might not feel real new. You might feel like a little bit of old still there. Just stay with it. Pretty soon, you'll realize that the new has come and the old is gone. Stay with it. Jesus has got a wonderful plan in store for us. Amen? Welcome to the family. Father, we just ask that you would help us to grasp this truth. That we have been predestined, adopted into the family of God. Sons and daughters of the living God, Father. With all the beautiful benefits that come to us, Father. And we recognize that you've chosen us, Lord Jesus, to benefit the whole body. That you see something of value within us, Father. And Lord, I ask, O God, that you'd help each one of us this week to walk worthy of that, Father. To recognize that calling, Father, and to to cooperate with you, Holy Spirit, to listen to you, Holy Spirit, to turn our ear towards you in such a way that we will be obedient to you, Holy Spirit. And as you speak into our hearts, that we would be found saying, yes, Lord Jesus, yes, Lord Jesus. And Lord, that we would not contest with you, Father, that we would not fight with you, we would not argue with you, Father, that we would be attentive to your small voice, Father. And Lord, that our lives, Lord Jesus, would be walk in obedience before you, Father that we would please you in every respect, Father. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for redeeming us. And Lord, we thank you for lifting us and making us part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.